first reading is from John 17, it's verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Acts 1, 6-11 So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking into heaven, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, behold, two men stood by him in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you would, pray with me. Lord, there is such potential here. If your people, if we in this room grasp these words, if through the power of your Spirit they are worked into our hearts, there will be transformation. There there will be personal transformation. There will be community transformation. So God, I ask that you would send your Spirit to open up our hearts and our minds. Give us a, a clarity that we would not normally have. An openness that we would normally resist. And write these words on our heart. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain. And may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. After the Lord delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, through the hand of Moses, the people were immediately led through the desert to the foot of Mount Sinai. Um, And there, the, the one who had saved them, the Lord had used to save them, Moses, he, he ascended up the mountain, and the, the, the mountain was covered with smoke, and no one knew exactly what was going on. There were rumors about glory, there were, there were rumors of different things, but nobody could, could see through the cloud, and, and nobody could see what was going on. And so this, this ascension of Moses proved to be a time of testing. For God's people. 
It was a time of perseverance, it was to be a time of waiting, and it was a time of testing, one in which they failed. Exodus 32.1 says this, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, now the ascension of Jesus provides for us here in this room a time of similar testing. Uh, We wonder what has happened to Jesus. Where has Jesus gone And if we're not careful, we can fall into the same trap and commit idolatry. If we don't know where Jesus is, we don't know what has happened to Him. I think that the church as a whole, especially the Western church, the the church here in America, has committed idolatry because of this. Now by this, I don't mean that we've melted down gold and um, we're manufacturing uh, a golden calf. But, but we are making idols. Um, when we worship a, a Jesus that is different than the ascended Jesus, different than the exalted Jesus, it's nothing more than idol worship. And when we worship a Jesus who's not all-powerful, a Jesus who is not ruling, a Jesus who does not demand absolute allegiance, who's not supreme, who's not majestic in His glory. He he might be the risen Jesus, but He's not the exalted Jesus. He hasn't ascended to the throne of God. And and I think the Western church as a whole doesn't see Jesus as exalted. The, The evidence that I would submit to you is all you have to do is look at how we pray. Look at how we pray. Uh, the Western church and the, the Christianity that we export to other parts of the world prays like one would pray to an idol. Um, or maybe even to a good luck charm. You know, we, we pray for things like, uh, you know, God give us health. Um, God give us a job. God give us, give us some money. Um, God, give us good digestion before this, mood, before this meal. You know. uh, we, we, almost like a genie lamp that we rub or, or a good luck charm. Uh, missing are prayers like this from Paul in Ephesians 1. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in His saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the age to come. And He has put all things under His 
feet, and He is the head over all things of the church. It's really bad English. It's a run-on sentence. It's, it's, it's bad Greek. It's a run-on Greek. But Paul would get this way when he would pray. It's great theology. When's the last time you've been in a prayer meeting where somebody has stood up and prayed like that? When's the last time you have prayed like that? We usually... I think one of the mistakes we make is we usually think of the resurrection of Jesus as when Jesus is exalted. The resurrection of Jesus. And as a result, we make a really big deal of Easter, which we should, but we kind of ignore the day of the ascension. You might be surprised to find that in Scripture, nowhere does it say Jesus is exalted in His resurrection. Nowhere. He's exalted two times. He's exalted on the cross in His death, and He is exalted at His ascension. But Scripture never says He is exalted in His resurrection. And when the church forgets about the ascension, it begins to worship a Jesus who is not highly exalted. And we will begin to deal with His mysterious absence in idolatrous ways. The church is going to use things to make up for the absence of Jesus. It's going to use you know, things like lights and sound and uh, manipulation, uh, play on the emotions. It's going to be nothing more than smoke and mirrors to try to get you to forget what is absent, Jesus. Because we don't have a strong picture of where Jesus is and how He is reigning. Now, we have no excuse, because unlike Israel, when Moses ascended up the mountain, we actually have Scripture that tells us where Jesus is. We actually have Scripture that tells us how He has been highly exalted. How He is sat, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And what I want us to do tonight is to to ask that God gives us eyes to see through that cloudy veil and to see see Jesus through His Word as exalted. And so let's start off again by by looking at Acts chapter 1. This text here happens 40 days after Jesus had uh, been resurrected from the dead. And he's assembled all his disciples together. He has just commissioned them to go to all of the nations. And then it says that he was lifted up. He was lifted up. Verse 9 says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, we shouldn't understand the, the words, and he was lifted up as, as meaning uh, having a spatial relationship, as, as, you know, maybe he just kept going up and up in the clouds until he disappeared into outer space, and, and Jesus is up there in outer space somewhere. That's, that's not what this is talking about. Um, when space flight was just starting, that's actually what astronauts thought they would find. And we find this absurd, but they thought when they would get into space, they would find Jesus. Because he had risen, risen up into space. 
But that's not the point of this text. Um, I have a seven-year-old Caroline who's in first grade. Next year, she will move up to second grade. She doesn't actually go up to a bigger building, up another floor, but she moves up. Um, If you get a promotion, um, you will move up in your job. That doesn't mean you spatially move up, but it's, it's it's a higher level of job that you now have. And that's the, that's the main point of this, is that not that Jesus is floating around in orbit somewhere, but that the cloud that comes, which is the Shekinah glory of God, when that cloud comes and envelops him, he moves somewhere from earth space into heaven space. He moves to heaven, not the heavens. Wherever that is. And the disciples, they see this, and they couldn't move. They can't move, they just, they just sit there. And I kind of picture, you know, their, their mouths dropping, just, what do we do now? An angel comes and rebukes them. It's a, it's a gentle rebuke that we read in Acts 1, but it's, it's a rebuke nonetheless. Look at verse 10. It says, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The disciples are just standing around because at first they think that they have just experienced a terrible loss. An incredible loss. They didn't know what to do. They lost Jesus. And so, they're stagnant. And this is what happens to Christians when you don't have an understanding of the meaning of the ascension. You just kind of stand around. There's no movement. Because we think of losing Jesus as a loss that we somehow have to compensate with now. That's not at all what's happening. Jesus leaving is better than Jesus staying. Uh, We see that Mary had the same reaction when she experienced the resurrected Jesus in John chapter 20. If you remember the story, um, she goes to the tomb. She's expecting Jesus to be in the tomb, but Jesus is out of the tomb, resurrected, and it says that she embraced him. She clung to him. And Jesus says these words to her. They're curious words. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He says, Let go of me. Let let go of me. I need to ascend to my Father. That's where I need to go. And he's, he's saying that, I, I know you think that you have to hold on to me for closeness now. But if you let me go, I will be closer than you can ever imagine. And, and you see, while, while Jesus was here on earth before he had ascended, 
when Jesus is in Galilee, he can't be with the people who are in Jerusalem. And when, people, when he's in Jerusalem, he can't be with the people who are in Galilee. He was limited. But once he had ascended and he had sent his spirit, he could be everywhere through his spirit. As John Calvin said, through the Holy Spirit, we are linked to Jesus in heaven at all times. And I tell you, once Mary understood this, once the disciples understood this, they were off like thunderbolts. Nothing could stop them. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't, when he is risen, he doesn't tell Mary, go tell them that I'm alive. He says, Mary, go tell them I am ascending. That's what was beating in his heart. Well, let's look at what happens or what happened at the ascension. I know pull from uh, several different places in Scripture. Um, According to Paul in Ephesians 1, when Jesus ascended to his Father, he says this. He says that Jesus is now, or the Father has seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Hebrews 1 says this, after making purifications for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hebrews 10 says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifices for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And you could go on and on with many different verses that talk about when he ascended, he sat down at the right hand of God. He went into the throne room where God, his father was, and he sat down. Now, when we typically think of a need to sit down, we think of rest. You know, Jesus, it's not Jesus sitting down because he's tired. That's not what's going on here. He's actually beginning a new work. Luke points this out real quick. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this, but in the very first verse of Acts, he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Meaning that Jesus was working then, but that was just the beginning. Now he is taken up, he has ascended, and he continues a work. It's a new work, but he is ever working. And he sits down at the right hand. And that just means that he has assumed all of the power of God. The right hand was where he had the scepter. And it's, it's just a symbolic way of saying he has now assumed all of God's power. He's ruling. Paul says this in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And if you read through the Gospels, you see that is what Jesus has been longing for. That has been the desire of His heart all this time. His desire has not just been resurrection. 
His desire has been exaltation. We see this in John 17, which we read earlier, and what we know is the high priestly prayer says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son with the glory or that the Son may glorify You. And since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him, and this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was created. And later he says this, Father, I desire that these disciples also whom you have given me may be where I am so that they can see me in my glory. And so the, the cry of Jesus' heart, His desire, while He was walking on this earth, was that He might return to glory and that His disciples would witness Him as He has returned to glory. That was the desire of His heart. Now, when He was on earth, He, he was certainly glorious. We would never say that Jesus was not glorious. But he wasn't glorious like the song we just sang that was from Revelation chapter 4 and 5. He wasn't glorious like that. Where you see him glorious on his throne. When he walked on this earth, you saw him glorious on the road. Glorious in people's homes. Glorious in the wilderness. Glorious in a boat. But you never saw him in all of his glory on the throne. Which is what Revelation 4 is about. Just... Listen to how many times the word throne is in Revelation 4. Once again, it'd be horrible English, but there's a point here. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second like an ox. The third with the face of the man. And the fourth like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now, 
John had before seen Jesus in glory in the wilderness or in homes or in a boat. He'd seen Jesus in glory that, but never before the throne, on the throne. And that's a different ballgame altogether. That's glory. And if we had eyes of faith to see Jesus in that glory, we would be absolutely transformed. Think of what that would do in your worship. To worship the glorified Jesus. This is the Jesus that Paul saw on the road to Damascus. Where Paul didn't just see the risen Lord. He saw the risen and exalted Lord. When he met Jesus, Jesus didn't say, hey, come, look at my hands and my feet. Come, touch me. He didn't say that. He didn't say, come, let's sit down and have dinner and eat fish together. Jesus didn't say that. When Paul saw this Jesus exalted, he dropped down to the ground and was blind. When John saw the vision we just read about, it says that he fell at his feet as though he were dead. When Daniel saw his vision of the glorified Son of Man, this glorified Jesus, it says that the color changed from his face and he dropped to the ground. When Stephen saw this exalted Jesus, he was stoned and he didn't even care. He didn't even care. I mean, seriously. Acts 7 says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And when he sees this Jesus, and it's the only time ever Jesus is standing at the right hand of God as Father, and, and this is pure speculation on my part, uh, the only reason I could think of that Jesus is standing and not sitting here is if Jesus stands to welcome Stephen. That's the only thing I could think of is he is standing to welcome Stephen. And when Stephen sees the exalted Jesus welcoming him, it's like, what's this? People hitting me with stones? Who cares? The stoning's an afterthought when you have the exalted Jesus welcoming you. God, give us eyes to see how that would change us. Now, I think we're so grounded in our view of the ascension. We don't have that heavenly view. Even Luke's account of the ascension, if, if I can say this, let, let the emails begin. It's kind of boring. The ascension, he just kind of, you know, cloud envelops and, you know, goes, disappears. It's, it's from the earth level of, of the ground. But, but there's a couple places in Scripture we actually see the ascension from heaven's point of view. One of those is in Daniel 7. This is a famous passage of Scripture that is often misunderstood to talk about, people think it's talking about the second coming of Jesus. But it's not talking about the second coming. It's actually talking about the coming of Jesus to heaven. Daniel 7, verse 13. 
Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. People often read into that that Jesus is descending from the clouds, but it it doesn't say that He is descending. He's ascending, and then He goes before the Ancient of Days, His Father. And when the Son of Man ascends, notice that He is given everlasting dominion. He's given a real kingdom that can never be taken away. You know, Jesus, for most of his trial, when he was about to be crucified, most of his trial, he's absolutely silent. I don't know if you've noticed that. You know, like a, like a lamb before his shears is silent. He didn't say a word. But one time he opens his mouth, and this is what comes forward. It's when the high priest says, I adjure you by the living God. Are you the Son of God? And he says... You have said so, but I tell you from now on, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And what he says is, High priest, when you kill me, the ceremony for my my inauguration of being king begins. Go ahead! Because I will ascend and I will go and inherit my throne. Can can you imagine, try, try to imagine the scene of when Jesus comes home to His kingdom. Imagine His enthronement. I mean, if myriads of angels rejoice now in heaven over one sinner who repents, what do you think the angels did when the one who brought that repentance, the one who conquered sin and death itself, came into heaven? Can can you imagine Can you imagine this procession as Jesus is, is coming home, as He's approaching the heavenly gates, and all of the angels, all of the angels that were held back at His crucifixion from rescuing Him, that were held at bay, they're all there. All of the angels who would have gladly delivered Him in a moment if given the word, but, but the Father says, no. All of the angels at the, the Garden of Gethsemane who were prevented from talking, who had to be silent. And they didn't know why. Now, finally, their king comes home and he has conquered sin and death. And the father says, restrain yourself no more. Can you imagine? That's what Psalm 24 is about. It's an ascension psalm. It's when Jesus reigns on the throne. It's the enthronement psalm. 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And the city responds, Who is this King of glory? It's the Lord, strong and mighty. It's the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. And they respond, Who is this King of glory? It's the Lord, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Can you imagine that procession? And in in a small way, we get to enter into that as believers. That when we worship, we join with that chorus. And let me tell you, when the King of glory comes in and is, is embraced by his Father and sits on his glorious throne, what we know from Scripture is <laughs> he looks at his Father and he says, Father, you promised me the nations for my inheritance. Give me what you promised. And the Father gladly grants the request of His Son. And the Spirit of God is unleashed. And we have Pentecost. Pentecost is the result of the ascension. It's the result of the enthronement of Jesus. It's the evidence of it. This is often overlooked when thinking about Pentecost, but the Apostle Peter certainly understood this. When, when, when Peter rushes out of that upper room with basically his head on fire, it seems like, and he is just preaching like crazy, filled with the Holy Spirit, the, the final thing he says in that first sermon, the, the climax of the sermon is this. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, for he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And it says, When the people heard this, they were cut in two. The foundation for missions is the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus. I'm going to share with you one, one final thought. Bear with me. I, I, I just simply can't skip over this. It, it, it's a thought that is, to me, so, so glorious, so wonderful that Every time I say it, I, I think I'm, I'm out of my mind. Y'all might too. I, I always feel like if it wasn't so clearly taught in Scripture, I would be committing blasphemy. And, and there are several Scriptures we could turn to. Because of time, we're just going to look at one. 
And this is a familiar text in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus says this. Listen carefully. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Most people usually stop there. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear. Did you have an ear to hear that? Jesus says that for those who conquer, which is those who keep the faith, those those who keep trusting Jesus for their salvation, He will grant for them to sit on His throne. Let me put it another way. When we trust Jesus for salvation, we are given His Spirit, which so unifies us to Him, that when He sits on His throne, we will someday sit on His throne. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Ephesians, in some strange way, in Ephesians 2, he says that we are already seated with Him in the heavenlies. Someday we will do so physically. I want to sit on the throne. That's, that's the revelation for the throne. Now you see why I feel like I'm almost committing blasphemy, that I'm, I'm, I'm almost crazy? And I'll be the first to admit, I have no idea how this works. How can we all fit on a throne? I don't know. I don't know. What I'm saying is that some way, some mysterious way, we're going to share in the kingly rule of Jesus overall. And that's what Paul means in Romans 8 when he says that we are heirs with Christ. Meaning everything that Christ inherited, we inherit. That's what Paul means when he tells the Corinthians that all things are yours, even the world. Such a thought is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Let me close by by reading these words from Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. Paul, who had seen the ascended Lord. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we don't want to be idol worshipers. Our worship is infected with idols pathetic idols. Puny idols. Idols that do not 
speak of the glorious Jesus we find in Scripture. That do not speak of an exalted Jesus. Spirit of God, what we just read is that you will show us what no eye has seen or ear has heard or we can even imagine. That you will reveal these things to us. And I am asking you for the glory of Jesus to do that now. Fix Jesus in our hearts as so supremely exalted that we will gladly throw down whatever crowns come our way in this life. We will gladly lay down our lives in allegiance and obedience. We will gladly worship Him with all of our being. Spirit of God, do that now for the glory of Jesus. Amen.